Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine and that is the UK's leading Christian magazine. It sponsors this show and makes it all possible. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue featuring interviews, news, reviews and so much more, you can request one completely free, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today, right here on The Profile, I am speaking to the sitcom writer, author and proud Calvinist, James Carey. He's worked on mainstream hits such as the BBC's My Family and Miranda. He's produced plays, including a comedy about the Reformation, Monk's Tale. And he's also a member of the Church of England's General Synod. He's the author of a new book, The Sacred Art of Joking, published by SPCK and Out Now. James, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And proud Calvinist is a new one for me. Humble Calvinist, surely. You can't be a proud Calvinist. Well, That's not allowed. This is the thing. Is is uh, Calvinist and comedian a contradiction? It's a good point. Um, I think a lot of people don't really know what Calvinism is, but I think, I don't know whether I would die on a hill for Calvinism as it is, but it seems like a fairly good summary of most of my relatively reformed, yes. relatively Presbyterian views, which mostly overlap with the Church of England, um, whom I represent in the my, my own diocese, the funniest diocese, the Diocese of Bath and Wells, because <laughs> um, we have the funniest bishop. So um, we, because uh, it's the bishop in Blackadder, obviously. So, so yeah, so it, it's 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 a good, it's a fairly good description of like I'm that kind of Christian yes. because I, we, no no one likes to be pigeonholed, no, but everyone does like shorthand, exactly. And so this is why the terms get used. It's easy shorthand to sort of put you in a particular absolutely, position. yeah. And so I sort of believe in most of the things that Calvinists tend to believe in, and that's that's fine by me. It just saves people, time. People do the whole thing of adding up how many point Calvinist are you because there's five points. And yeah. last time I checked, I think I was only about a three out of five. Okay. So maybe by the end of this interview, you would have moved me on a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I don't even know what the five are but uh, you know i sort of but is is it not true though that um sometimes those who take the reformed label rightly or wrongly have a reputation of being a bit stern and a bit severe absolutely and so i I have to one of the things i talk about in the book is that my my own theological tribe as it were are the ones who um when they had the opportunity shut all the theatres in england so oliver cromwell who is in some ways a hero of the faith probably quite difficult man in 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 other ways especially if you're the king of england i guess um when when he was lord protector he 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 shut all the theatres right. and often say that he is he is a man who had very little use for light entertainment <laughs> and before the reformation uh, which is a a thing that i celebrate and enjoy i wrote a show about it called a monk's tale um before that, there were mystery plays in which guilds used to come together and tell the Christian story um, theatrically, and um, that kind of all went by the wayside. And so there are lots of good aspects um, of of the of the old faith, as it were, uh, where we express these things in a in a way that was very much of the people, but we sort of own the Christian story. Um, and we we sort of lost that now, and we've become, in some ways, more theologically accurate, and that's great and very bookish. But in terms of storytelling, I think that has suffered. And in terms of the other thing that's um, that Calvinists like, which is where they kind of overlap with the sort of authoritarian Catholic thing, is that desire to control mm-hmm. and to not uh, let things uh, become chaotic. 
And of course, comedy is inherently anarchic. Right. It is intrinsically disruptive. Disruptive. And the moment you open a door for that, you don't really know what's going to come piling through. And it's always therefore easier just to keep the door locked. And so that's why I think the church has traditionally had a sense of humor yes. problem. And but equally, you know, there, there are more liberal progressive traditions who just say, oh, it's fine. Get over it. Have a sense of humor, which theologically isn't good enough. You know, right. we, have, we have to kind of do better than that. Yeah. Um, but I think there are there are lots of. But I think we can be much more relaxed about comedy if we actually uh, do do the do the reading and do the thinking. Yes. Um, and can be more comfortable with offence and offending people. Yeah. And you really only need to look at the ministry of Jesus to say, well, Jesus was was way more comfortable offending people than we are. Mm. And my worry is that whenever a Christian expresses themselves in a way that other Christians think is is graceless or tactless or rude that they will be critiqued and criticized for not being sufficiently winsome is a word that certain Christians use rather a lot. And you think, yeah, Jesus often wasn't winsome. No. Well, I mean, just in that, you've hinted at about 25 things I'd love to okay. dig deeper into. We'll see how we go in okay. the course of the next hour or so. Yeah. But here on the show, we always like to go right back to the beginning of a person's life and mm -hmm. hear something of their early life and faith. So I'm guessing you were born neither a Calvinist nor a Christian. So tell me about life growing uh, up. I was always destined to be a Calvinist, <laughs> as you would well know, but um, the faith that chooses you. Um, yeah, so I was brought up in a, a fairly traditional um, uh, English rural home my parents are dairy farmers we would go to church a bit um and but it wasn't really ever part of it's never really been part of our family life uh my parents uh, didn't didn't read the bible with me or um or we didn't really pray at bedtime or anything like that um but i went to a school where it was uh where christian the christian faith was taught extremely well extremely clearly there were very good role models there that i really looked up to and the uh, and it just kind of all made sense. And I, I realized this is a consistent worldview that I think is a really good description of of the world that we all want, that we intrinsically know is true. And that I can either live my life uh, pretending it's not true, or I can just become a Christian. And hmm. and there we go. So it was almost more through school than it was. Family. It was school. Wow. It was uh, exclusively school um, and, and various uh, sort of teachers and other other you know other other school and was folks. it a christian school it was a very christian school right. yeah and um it's it's a it's a school that was originally set up for the children of missionaries and um and it, it's never really and lots of christian schools are now not terribly christian but this one was and still is and i would happily send my kids there if if i had the money to do so <laughs> um and those schools now are sort of twice the price that they were when i was being sent through those schools for for, for reasons that i don't fully understand so um so yeah and then I, I went through and I you know obviously I had questions and uh you know you think there are a lot and I, when I was about 15 or 16 I read uh the holy blood and the holy grail which was the supposedly non-fiction book on which um the da vinci code was based okay. and I remember thinking wow is you know is, is the whole of Christianity a deception or a lie and then I thought you know what if I study theology at university this stuff will probably come up if there's anything to it and it kind of didn't right and so i did an academic theology degree and my faith survived that okay perfectly intact yeah um and it's, it's so interesting we have a lot of people come through and sit in this chair that you're sitting in right now and i always hear very mixed reports from people who did theology particular in a 
sector or mainstream university setting. Yeah. Some say it really rocked my faith. Mm. Others say, fine, no problems. You were in the latter. Very much so. Yeah, I think in a way I wasn't, I mean, I was too busy writing comedy sketches, really, (laughs) and doing other things. So my my degree was the thing that I sort of had to do because I was at university. And, you know, I would... Sounds familiar to a lot of students. Yeah, and and I'd agree. (laughs) And and many people listening to this show would just think that education is wasted on the young. And I I think that's absolutely right. And (laughs) the idea of having three years off now to just go and read books, I just can't think of anything more wonderful. I know. Um, But there we go. It's funny, isn't it? We don't think like that. Well, I didn't think like that Mm. as a student necessarily. You get a bit older, you think, wow, those were three brilliant years. They were three brilliant years (laughs) where I should have read more books. But (laughs) yeah, so it was... It wasn't something that's, um, that I found particularly challenging to my faith. And I sort of, you know, I, and there, there, were, there, there were plenty of sceptical uh, theology tutors and things. I, I didn't think that their, their knockdown anti-Christian arguments were terribly convincing. And I wasn't particularly minded to get into a serious battle with them because they'd clearly made up their minds. And, and that was that really. And I, I spent more time you know, yeah, writing sketches and writing stuff yeah. for the university newspaper. and So you were interested in comedy again from an early age, were you? Yeah, I've just always loved comedy. I, you know, to the point where I sort of didn't really see the point of anything else on television other than comedy, wow. apart from uh, test match cricket. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I've always, always wanted to understand it. I've always wanted to know why it was, how, how does it work? And if you want... And not from a particularly performance point of view. So I've only recently started doing more comedy performing. But for 20 years, I've not really done that because I've not felt that I want to be the one out there being funny and getting laughs. And it's 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 not the sound of laughter and that intoxicating feeling that comedians really like um, f- for good or ill. But um, it's more that I just love the puzzle of what works and what doesn't work. And yes. it's it's... So when I do radio recordings, particularly, I will sit in the audience and no one around me knows that I'm the writer of the show and I'm not going to tell them. But it's interesting just to hear what they laugh at and what they don't laugh at. And it's almost like a crossword puzzle where you just think, oh, they laughed at that one. I was right about that. (laughs) Oh, they laughed at that one. And then, oh, they didn't laugh at that one. Oh, that's interesting. Why didn't they? And they, wow, they really laughed at that one. I didn't think that, I don't, I don't. I didn't it's, think that one was that funny. It's almost like all of the power and none of the glory because it's it's the power in the pen to put words in people's mouths. But like you say, you don't get the glory because no one knows that you wrote it necessarily. It's not actually that dissimilar to edit, editing a magazine. Well, there I'm we not, go. I'm not necessarily writing the material. Yeah. My name isn't necessarily on some of the features, yeah. but I've edited them and I've shaped them. Yeah. And again, what you you talk about with the feedback and sitting in the audience seeing what laughs, it's yeah. always interesting to see how people respond to certain yeah. features. And, and you got your own podcast, so you know, come well, on. Well, there you go. Don't get me wrong, I do still write as well but yeah. I, I get the dynamic yeah. of being behind the scenes yeah. and you just sort of and it's your and also once you start working with decent comedy actors and and back in those days when I started out doing radio you know I was working with at least two women who've now won or been nominated for Oscars one was Olivia Coleman and one was Sally Hawkins um and you know and they're fu- they're good and once you start working with people who are good you just think well they're better at it than I am for goodness sake just let <laughs> let them let them sell the material right. and I'll, I'll figure out the jokes. So uh, you sort of quickly work out what you're good at and what other people do better than you. And I think that's an important part of that process. I imagine this whole area of comedy, comedy writing must be incredibly competitive and tough to get into and not always easy to make a living from. Am I right in any of those assumptions? I think there's an, 20 years ago when I was starting out, it might have been easier because there were fewer people doing it. And now everyone's a writer or everyone wants to be a writer. 
I guess back then there were fewer channels and fewer opportunities, but I think there were fewer people going for it. But equally, you couldn't make your own stuff back then anywhere near like you could now. Podcasting didn't exist. YouTube didn't exist. And uh, the sort of camera that we're you know recording bits of this uh, interview on, um, they, those bits of kit were 30, 40,000 pounds. Yep. Or you could rent them for a day for 800. Yeah. Um, and they'd come with a big guy called Steve who'd know how to operate <laughs> it. Steve, Jeff, Pete, Dave. All, all cameramen are called one of those things. Um, and, or Barry. But, um, but, so it's, so in, but now you can kind of make your own stuff. Yeah. Um, and it is really interesting to see how it all shakes out because now we have, we live in a world where the crown spends 10 million pounds on an episode um and then you have a a, a sitcom that is made for 250,000 pounds for half an hour and co- for some reason comedy always gets less money but also there's this weird law that the more expensive a comedy is the less funny it is right so i think the most expensive comedy movie there's been was tropic thunder which cost about 75 million wow wasn't great yeah and all of the great movies, all of the great comedy movies like the Python movies or Spinal Tap or yeah. With Nell and I, they were made for nothing. Absolute shoestring. So it, it's kind of annoying that comedy is, is cheap to make um, and that that adversity really focuses your mind on what, the, what all the jokes are and everything. Um, huh. But and yeah, and I think there's an expectation of the audience that they, they there's a, I was talking uh, to my literary agent actually weirdly today about how the audience immediately understand if it's a sitcom that it doesn't that the, the the rules different rules apply and they're they're watching they're watching blackadder the second in the court of elizabeth it, obviously it's not really the court of elizabeth it's obviously a studio there are no extras there's just the queen and her and nursey and lord melchard yep. and and that's it yep. and no one cares we get it it's a cartoon it's yeah. a so the audience is super smart on that. Um, but then the moment you start going high end and you show them everything and, you know, watching The Marvelous yeah. Mrs. Maisel, for example, you just think, oh my goodness, this show is so expensive. <laughs> you did all that in one shot and only people in television actually noticed that, but you did it anyway. Yeah. But, um, so was there a moment for you in your career you look back on as, oh, that was my big break? I think people like the idea of a big break and th- there undoubtedly are big breaks, but it's sort of a series of breaks really where... You know, getting your first credit on the radio for me, I got a sh- I got a sketch on Weekending on Radio Four, and then getting a TV credit um, on a TV show called Smack the Pony, winning, uh, becoming nominated for Perrier Best Newcomer at the Edinburgh Fringe in 1999, which was nice. But then that helped me get a radio sitcom commissioned, and that won a uh, a Sony Silver Sony Radio Award, um, and we lost to a a special episode of you know i'm sorry i haven't the clue it's like well, okay we're not gonna we're not gonna be i'm not gonna beat that with my first ever sitcom <laughs> episode um you know and then i got to work on something else which then led to this which then led to that which then led to miranda which then led yeah. to bluestone 4-2 which then led to you know working on other shows and and so in a way one thing leads to another and you you, you sort of you you sort of just kind of roll with it really and there's if you, if you took out one or two of those maybe it wouldn't have made that much difference if you took out five of them but then also, if if other things had happened, maybe I'd be living in LA, uh, <laughs> making a lot more money, uh, making very different shows. 
but I'm not sure that would be an improvement. And so when you when you write some of these, some of the bigger things, do you get to meet the the big name actors who are playing the parts? And well, yeah, I mean, do you, you have you're... one of those stories of so and so is a right, you know, so and so off camera. Yeah, or... no, there are. Yes, you do, and um, my lips very much are sealed on that score. But um, but yeah, no, it's it's a team effort. TV and everyone has to I would say, especially TV comedy is made for surprisingly small amounts of money and is recorded after surprisingly small amounts of rehearsal. So I've just done a, a new show um, uh, about the murder of Thomas Beckett, and we spent two whole weeks rehearsing it and, um, and, and, and performing it again and again and again and again. And then we'll, we're gonna do a few more shows and that kind of stuff. But it's kind of not finished yet, it's not ready. But a TV sitcom is re- is rehearsed in three days, four days, and then you record it, and that's it. It's that's it's going to be on UK Gold like that forever. Um, okay. And there's just no time to do anything. So everyone's just working as hard as they can and trying to get along with each other. And some people are difficult or hard to like or or very particular, yes. and they get to dig their heels in. And sometimes they're right to do that. And, and sometimes presumably on set there could be tweaking of lines all the time. As well, yeah. Does that ever cause tension if an actor yeah. wants to change what you've written and you're thinking, no, it works better the other way? Well, uh, you do get those little things. And in general, I'm, I'm pretty flexible. Um, and once an actor has a problem with a line, trying to convince them that the line is fine is, is a bit of a waste of time because they're starting <laughs> to panic. They don't like the line. Right. They don't want to say, it. just change it. Right. Um, it's so unlikely that that exact version of that line yes. is absolutely load-bearing, mission critical. They have to say that that way then. Yeah. Um, so there is not, I think some, you know, there is not a platonic ideal of every single script which you're trying to, um, uh, trying to get your script to be like. Every, every, you know, you're rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and the only thing that stops that process is do you literally run out of time and you have to start rehearsing it and then you're rewriting it a bit more and then you've got to film it and then you edit it and then it's broadcast and it's done. Yeah. You know, you, you can't do anything now even if you wanted to. Yeah. What do your friends and the your friends and colleagues in the comedy world make of your faith? Um, I think they they're very nice to me personally i don't know what they say when i'm not there <laughs> i presume they think i'm a little bit weird um because christians tend not to go into this line of work for for reasons that are partly linked to what we've already said before about that that my particular faith tribe tends not to send people into the entertainment industry um and tends to send people who are good with words into ministry it tends to criticize the entertainment industry yeah. quite a lot we'll come on to talk about um some of this um as well a little bit later on i mean along those lines though are you the only comedian who voted for brexit it would appear so <laughs> um i was at the uh i was at the craft of comedy awards uh a couple of years ago and the radio for today program were there and they they sort of said did anyone here vote brexit and literally vote to leave and i so I said, yep, put my hand up. I was literally the only person the in the room. The only person in the room. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, but I doesn't, I, I don't You're care. Not bothered. You just no, don't not care. really. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, all, I'm a pretty contrary person. And um, I think you kind of need to be, uh, to be a writer or to, you know, I think it's a personality issue as well. So, you know, there is it a certain, there odd. is a, yeah. It is odd though, you talk about being contrary because, just okay as someone who's in their 20s who lives in london who works in the media all of the parameters for that would suggest that i voted to remain right yes that is that is basically yeah, if yeah. you believe the statistics yeah. and so i constantly live and work in an environment 
which is actually opposite to the majority because mm. of course the majority did vote to leave yeah and yet in the media world in london amongst my age group everything i'm hearing is opposite to that yeah so weirdly for yourself mm. you're in the majority because you voted yeah, to, to leave. leave yeah and yet must feel like for you as well as if you're in a slightly backwards world where a lot of what you're hearing a lot of the people you're interacting yeah. with are the opposite even yeah, though they're no, not the majority it is, it is a very much down is up kind of political uh time isn't it and which is why you know i just sort of i don't listen to an awful lot of radio news or tv news and it's 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 all a bit of a mess but yeah no it is strange isn't it to to be sort of made to feel like you're in the minority but it's like no no we we we, we won <laughs> you did actually win. we did actually win. We, I mean, we haven't left yet and we may <laughs> we may never leave um certainly that's kind of the way that um it appears that the establishment would like it to be but um i'm fairly relaxed about it as well i don't take it particularly personally i can't even believe there was a referendum so the fact that there was i i i sort of rather assume i have, I have such a low view of of politics um because one of the other things i describe myself as as a classical liberal right i don't really believe in politics is i just assumed that even if we won the referendum that we would sort of be told oh well we shall take full account of these views and that would be that and then in 10 years time we would go hang on didn't we vote to leave the eu and it was like yeah 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 but we, yeah but you didn't really and and that's the end of that um because the political establishment are really not terribly interested in in what people actually think and i understand why because they just think well give them half a chance they bring back the death penalty and, and hanging or whatever um you know which also you know fairly mixed views about so um so yeah, so it's again. I, I don't really lose a lot of sleep over. It doesn't make me particularly angry. Yeah. Um, but it does, you know, on social media make people surprisingly angry. But yes. You know. So we've talked, we've talked a little bit about what those in the comedy world think of Christianity. But what do Christians think of what you do for a day job? Are there any kind of common misconceptions you find when you walk into church on a Sunday morning? Um. Yeah, I think on one level there's always the suspicion that if you work for the BBC that you or you know which I've never been an employee of the BBC but I've you've worked on not, stuff yeah, that's gone I mean, with the BBC yeah, yeah I mean sort of 95% of my scripted comedy has been broadcast by the BBC TV or radio right um, then then yeah I mean the the church especially my kind of church they don't have that much good to say about the BBC in terms of the prevailing political um, and religious messages that are put out in terms of um sort of progressive liberal leftism mm -hmm. uh and actually i, I think the, the i think in some ways i'm far bit for me to defend the bbc considering how the bbc is predominantly run by and populated by people who are liberal liberal left socially progressive i'm surprised at how fair it actually is right um and that it does employ quite a lot and actually quite a lot of the big hitters like andrew neil um no one could accuse them of being uh, sure. liberal left socialists so you know I, I think I think I have some sympathy with with the BBC on this one but yeah I think the, the thing that people always get hung up on well, actually weirdly the thing that people really get hung up on is is swearing and bad language and therefore I wrote a show called Bluestone 4-2 about soldiers um, in Afghanistan and and people would be quite surprised to learn that a Christian was a co-writer yes. of that show because the way the soldiers talk to which I would say that's how soldiers That's how talk. Soldiers I talk. don't know if you've ever met any soldiers, but <laughs> and actually, soldiers who watch it um, sometimes do 
early, early episodes, the soldiers said, where's all the swearing? You know, you know, we swear a lot, right? And we're like, yeah, we've already got a lot of swearing. But they just, they, they don't even know how much they swear. They, they say right. swear was literally all the time. Right. Um, this is part of the way they talk. So we sort of had to back off that. But, you know, also when, it, when an IED goes off and blows up near you, you, you don't say, oh dear. Yeah. That's, that's not the words that they use. And so it would be a sort of a bit of a nonsense to, to write stuff that is just basically untruthful. And on another level as well, I often say to Christians um, who are offended by the language, it's like, well, good, you should, you should be. Um, and if you're not offended by the language, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be more worried. So you can watch it and you can, as C.S. Lewis talks about, surrender to the art form. And you've not sullied yourself um, by being offended by something because, you know, we, we we want to help people who are in who have made poor life choices and are now in this and that and so as christians we want to be with people who've who you know we're not we're not made unclean by being by being with them in the same way yes. we're, not, we're not being made unclean i guess the response to that sometimes is uh, yeah okay my day-to-day life i want to reach out to anyone regardless yeah. of whether they're using bad language or not yeah i just don't want to be entertained by bad language okay well don't watch it then um i'm, I'm completely comfortable with the idea that and i and i i don't like uh, bad language so the thick of it was a show i really really did like i think they went overboard on the bad language and they sort of tried to turn it into an art form whereas we tried to have it more as this is just how they talk and actually in- intentionally we never had any serious swearing in the first scene the pre-title sequence because we didn't want to put people off with the language so we were always very careful to say we're not we don't think swearing is clever uh because it's really very easy to do but equally, this is this is the world. So, and again, you you know your conscience. And if you as a Christian think I don't, you know, watching that kind of stuff, I think is wrong. Fine, I have no problem with you not watching it. I don't think you're at liberty to tell me that I shouldn't have written it. Um, if you if watching that language makes you want to use that language, uh, then you then you should also review whether you should do it in the same way that if you watch something like Game of Thrones with lots of nudity and if that causes you to stumble, well, you know, be be responsible. But mm. I think, you know, Calvinists particularly, we sort of like rules. And so we say, no, you can't watch this. You can't do that. And actually, um, Jesus's ministry, the Bible itself contains very, very troubling, strange images. One of the things I look at in the book is that there are very rude words in the bible that we have changed and euphemized um because we don't like the scatological uh, sort of toilet words uh, that are used occasionally not very often but occasionally yes. um and you know we've all been in St. church paul in particular has very yeah. interesting uh, language yeah. to do with uh, I, I consider them rubbish yes it's um, not rubbish yes is it? It, it isn't <laughs> another rubbish. word beginning with yeah, s yeah it's right yeah <laughs> Um, it's, yes it is a really interesting one to think wow there might actually be words that to our mind at least are if not swearing them very close to swearing in the bible itself yeah. so christians can latch onto the language because it seems like such a hot button thing and yet have a bit of a blind spot to the fact that that you you do know that people are getting shot dead in this show and you're you're fine with that yeah okay you do know there's a commandment of you shall not murder I'm Sam Hales, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio and my interview with the sitcom writer James Carey. Lots more to come on the show, we'll be back right after this. Premier Christianity magazine, in this month's issue. Another street preacher arrested. A nurse sacked for sharing her faith. Many are asking, is secularism on the rise? And if so, what should we do about it? Plus... 
we interview Christian Concerns' Andrea Williams, the worship leader, Lou Fellingham, and the woman who survived the Rwandan genocide and learned to forgive her enemies. And if you're wondering which of the many Christian festivals to attend this summer, we've got a quiz to help you decide. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. Today I'm in conversation with the sitcom writer James Carey. At the end of part one, we were talking about different Christian attitudes towards swearing on TV and James mentioned that he's written a show called Bluestone 4-2, which is about a bomb disposal unit in Afghanistan and how that show does contain some bad language. Let's pick up the rest of the conversation about that and lots more still to come on the show, so don't go anywhere. Here is the rest of my conversation with James Carey. And one of the characters in the show uh, is uh, a squaddy called Mag, who is basically a psychopath and he joined the army because he wants to shoot people. Mm. Um, and in the Christmas special, we had a great, uh, one of my favourite darkest lines is when they get a call out on Christmas Day and they get ambushed by the Taliban and he starts shooting them and he's just, he's shot one and he's shot another one and he says, he uses a swear word and says, wow, it really is Christmas. And you think, Phew, that's that's a pretty dark yeah. thing but that's like people like that join the army yeah and you kind of need people like that to join the it's army it's almost a coping mechanism isn't it Some yeah of that kind of humor and so i'm not condoning that psychopathic sure. behavior yeah but it's but for some How reason christians christians are more worried about language yes and nudity uh, than, than all of these other things, which are yeah. far more insidious, well, I have like heard, Love Island or all these sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, I have heard people say before, though, as well, uh, from a Christian perspective, that, that everything preaches a message. Yeah. So like you say, okay, if you want to get hung up on certain words or nudity or whatever, mm. but what's the overall message that mm. a film or a TV show or a piece of music is, is communicating? I mean, you mentioned something like Love Island. I've often thought, you know, most romantic comedies, aside from whether there's sex in it or language mm. or whatever else, the message that's communicated about love and relationships, often, I would argue, mm. is a pretty terrible message. Yeah. So it, for you as a writer, are you thinking more about what's the overall message that's being preached through something I'm writing more than does it contain swear words? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think situation comedy, traditionally understood at least, is is profoundly judeo-christian in order in terms of the stories that you're telling and you're always showing that moral choices have consequences right, okay. and you distort and you change them and you abbreviate some and you extend others um and so but you know that's what parables are they they don't tell the whole story they're just telling a snapshot they're telling one angle of a story and so sitcoms are kind of compressed versions of reality. And we know that if Miranda, say, tells a lie at the beginning of the show, that that lie is going to have to be exposed at some point and the consequences will come out and mm. she will suffer the consequences for lying. If somebody is proud in a show, then we know that they are going to be humbled. And that is a, that is a cathartic thing that, we, that I'm in favour of. And I think that sitcom does that very well they, they are little morality tales they are little mystery plays yes. um that follow that judeo-christian 
uh, pattern. And I think there are lots of comedies now which kind of don't do that and they tend not to rate very well. They tend to critically do well because they seem very strange and challenging. But ultimately there is a nihilism at the heart of them mm. which isn't terribly funny because um, it's not very rewarding because we we are programmed by God because we are made in God's image for that Judeo-Christian ethic and therefore we shouldn't be surprised yes. that it that that it tends to be satisfying when we get it and right. the classics remain classics because they're written with that in mind even though there are always mixed messages mm. and they're not written by christians or performed by christians or but i think within within that traditional form of storytelling yeah it has come from a judeo-christian culture um and so i'm i'm sort of fairly comfortable about it. and so in the case of bluestone 4 2 about soldiers it's a show about why soldiers love being soldiers and it's about their friendship and the fact that although they're teasing each other all the time, the moment there's a threat to that group, they will do anything for each other. And so it's actually a strangely very warm-hearted show that, that, um, that I think really does describe why uh, soldiers want to go to war and want to experience that camaraderie and, and being a band of brothers that you just don't really get in any other sort mm. of situation. And Bluestone 4.2 is available on iPlayer. Yeah, I think it is currently on iPlayer, it yes. On iPlayer. And it, also, it is also available on DVD. So, there you go. So buy the DVD and <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll make slightly more money there that you way. There you go. But only slightly. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to dwell too much longer on the content question because no. I think, like we've said, Christians talk about it a lot and there's actually loads more interesting things I want to talk to. But just one more question on kind of content because uh, you've already mentioned Game of Thrones yeah. and that's a that comes up and Christians debate should we watch this or not and I know there are many supposed issues with Game of Thrones but I think one of them is violence and the high level of violence and you do uh, still hear Christians talk about oh that's that's too violent I wouldn't I wouldn't want to watch that necessarily Uh, my question about this is more about what's happened over time because you could argue that what is considered now quite normal in terms of graphic violence in film and tv even just a couple of generations ago we never would have gone anywhere near it. It would have been viewed as way too extreme. So some people think there's almost a bit of a slippery slope going on. As time goes on, we seem to be comfortable, actually, with more and more gratuitous yeah. violence. Is there any truth in that? And is that something that should concern Christians in any way? I I think there is truth in that. There is undoubtedly an escalation of these things. Uh, I, I, I really I don't like violence at all. And, I, and so that is the bits where I really look away at Game of Thrones. And I do sometimes take my glasses off so that I can't see it and so I can only hear it um and I fast forward those bits sometimes um as well because I sort of I don't feel I need that having said that it is it is good for it to feel like it matters it does need to feel real there was a kids book that I actually uh, st- stop reading for a bit because my kids are funny a bit too much there's a book by a guy called nate wilson called 100 cupboards and the second book it's sort of particularly aimed i think at young boys and it's a bit sort of nine-year-ish and stuff but actually the boy experienced some physical pain that i think was really well written and really felt like it hurt and it was just words on the page and my kids found it quite uncomfortable right. and i thought that's pretty good because pain needs to be experienced uh, you need to feel it you know like if you're a writer I can't remember who it was it said it's pro- most things are either Mark Twain or someone like that <laughs> or C.S. Lewis about you don't want wrongly attributed yeah don't yeah don't don't tell the audience it's raining make them feel like they're being rained on right or that kind of thing. yes so but the thing is that you know our tastes do change and the conventions of storytelling do change but they change really fast and so putting 
putting pins in the ground doesn't tend to work because you now look back at shows from the 90s that are comedies and you just think, wow, that's sexually very creepy and predatory in a way that was deemed to be funny and mainstream. Yes. Um, and we wouldn't do that now. And there are things that are sort of violent that don't seem to be very realistic or seem cartoonish. And there are things now that seem much too re more too realistic. Um, but then also... You know, it's all going downhill. Okay, well, in the 40s, we actually carpet bombed entire cities. And that was fine, apparently, um, because they started it. And you think, well, we kind of wouldn't do that now. So, th and that's why I think yeah. the hu human standards of morality don't really work for me because they change. Yes. And that's why it's not as I'm a Bible fan. Right. Because let's take our, let's, let's take our, our cues from God's sublime, inerrant word um and and then we can argue about that yes so it's um, not as simple as everything's getting better or everything's getting worse no yeah. i think i think that's right and there, there are things that you do watch where you just think oh i used to love this show and you watch it and just think oh um <laughs> there was that thing about i think it was probably my generation millennials or, or the generation underneath whatever that is generation z z or something. maybe i don't know uh watching friends on yeah. netflix yeah. And some apparently being quite shocked at what they thought were inappropriate jokes. Of course, not that long ago. Yeah. You know, 90s or early 2000s yeah. were absolutely fine. And like yeah. you say, things can move on very, very quickly. Yeah. And that's, yeah, there's there's no end to that. And therefore, yeah. that's not a role you want to go And down. this is one of the things your book does so well in bringing out the context, why context matters mm. with joking. Um, in fact, I, I, got a, I think I got a pre-release copy of the book. And I think this 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 page of the book might have been removed for the for the real thing but the copy of the book i had uh, this is the sacred art of joking published by sbck there was like a, a whole page in big print that said if you're a journalist please read it's this still bit there. first is no, it still there that's, that's right yeah yeah <laughs> tell us about what i then read because as you can imagine as a journalist flicking through i then immediately had to read that bit. of course you did yeah that's right and i'm glad it had the desired effect <laughs> um it is it's one of those things whereby whenever you just whenever you hear comedy discussed on television it's and i'd say it's one of the least funny things it's it ever is is the presenter of newsnight reading out a joke <laughs> to a comedian that he, you know a joke that he did yep. in front of a member of a pressure group who was mortally offended by that joke <laughs> and they say in your so-called comedy routine you said blah 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 is that funny to which the answer is well, no, not the way you did it. And it's it's not funny in an overlit Newsnight studio no. in front of someone whose job it is to be offended by this joke. <laughs> so, um, whereas if you'd been a member of the paying audience in that club on that night right. yeah. and been part of the context of the original joke, then you would have been less offended. You still might be offended. And that would be fine to still be offended and to defend the right to tell the joke or to admit that maybe the joke was a mistake, but ultimately who cares yep. um or that this is a sin and not a crime which is a sort of another sort of theme theme of the of the book um so the context really really does matter and comedians know that and therefore the kind of jokes that they tell um in in if, if you pay 15 quid to go to a comedy club if you go to the comedy store the midnight show you are opening yourself up to a a, a robust form of comedy that you wouldn't expect to see piped into your home on live at the apollo right and um you know and david See, frost i was... think many people don't know or understand that because when yeah. i read that bit in your book i thought i'm not sure if i'd completely under understood really the dynamic to which that is true like you say when you go to certain comedy clubs at certain times in the evening yeah. or certain people are playing 
you're right actually that the level of comedy for some people is going to be much more offensive than what would make it onto like yeah. you say some of the once it's been through the broadcasters yeah. and, and is, is kind of written for a wider audience some yeah. of it isn't as as biting you know yeah. comedy and there's a great David Frost quote about uh, the television allows you to be entertained by people that you wouldn't normally let in the house <laughs> um, and so but even then, comedians still do moderate stuff that's when it's televised, unless you're Frankie Boyle or something, right. in which case your reputation is based on irritating people or saying things that are unsayable. And, I, you know, it's, I don't particularly want to watch it, but I, I admire his... You defend his right to do it. I defend his right to do it, and I would defend the art form of sort of satirically irritating people. Uh-huh. And I, I myself wouldn't do it, but that style of comedy doesn't work for me that's yeah. not what i would want to do there's, there's been a lot in the media recently and i think this is a, a subject that almost certainly would would concern you of comedians almost falling foul of it appears the law at times simply yeah. for making a joke yeah. and uh, people are worrying now about this culture of offense of because i'm offended someone deserves to be arrested for it almost well yeah it's a disaster i mean and that's it, it, the law is already terrible and um, I would argue uh, tyrannical because uh, the police could sort of arrest virtually any comedian ever because the, you only need to prove the possible perception of someone being offended um, in order to be uh, uh, prosecuted under the Prevention of Terrorism 2003 Act or whatever it is, the specific references in the book. And that's how Count Dankula was uh, was prosecuted um, for for playing a joke on his on his girlfriend by making her her beautiful little pug dog do a Nazi salute. And um, he used a phrase in that, which is very offensive, I'm not going to say on the thing. Um, and, you know, it was... He, he's he's had to pay a fine. He's had to pay an £800 yeah. fine for that. He's a criminal. That is a criminal offence, what yeah. he's done, for a act that was designed to prevent terrorism. Yeah. Um, and so the laws that are already in place um, are a disaster. And so it, it is only... Um, so when people are up in arms that the police are investigating these crimes, so-called, it's not, well, they're only doing their job. It's the right. lawmakers and you the politicians the who yeah. have, you know, produced really bad legislation which is very worrying and Rowan Atkinson to his credit has always been very public about this he doesn't he doesn't talk about much he doesn't give many interviews but his freedom of speech uh, passion I think yes. is is really important and I wonder if this is one of the areas actually where you're the two worlds that you represent yeah. of uh, comedy and kind of Christianity there's a real meeting point here because I think Christians share this con- it's not just those in the comedy world that Absolutely. are concerned what about our freedom of speech Christians are increasingly kind of scared I mean there have been a number of cases of street preachers being arrested they to my knowledge almost always are released without charge doesn't go any further but even the fact they're being arrested in the first place for standing on a street corner and sometimes it's seems just reading out the bible or saying some sort of christian doctrine that worries christians because it should worry them because we think can't we just say what we do we not have freedom of speech no uh, no we don't we don't have freedom of speech um the americans do they have the they have the amendment first i guess because there there are laws aren't there you know it's illegal to incite racial hatred for example yeah so it seems that that nobody and i think most people can understand why that is the case but it, it does represent a difficulty when it comes to where do we draw the line in terms of what we think is okay to be said mm. and what we think is beyond the pale. And actually, if you are trying to encourage others to beat up people just because they're a different skin colour, yeah. we don't want that either. So yeah. how do you figure out that? I one? mean, incitement to violence is hard, pretty hard to justify. I mean, incitement to hatred, again, you just think, well, who, who defines that? Um, I think there's a bit of a problem is because of the, the kind of the hollowing out of our institutions, and the atomization of 
of our society in terms of it feels like we now have the individual and the state and that's it and we don't have uh we don't place importance on on peer groups on families on uh institutions on churches on on other organizations to monitor the way in which people speak and to ostracize them for the way they speak rather than prosecute them it feels that the only way to make people behave is to pass a law and that is a fundamental problem for me which is why i'm a classical liberal in this regard is because there is a fundamental understanding or lack of understanding that sins are not crimes some some sins should be crimes um but there are some things where it's like I don't want I don't want to cause offence necessarily with jokes. I'm comfortable with offence being caused at various points, but I, I don't. There are people who say certain certain things or do certain jokes which I wouldn't do, and I think are tasteless. I think they're poorly executed. It's not a criminal offence to do that. No. It shouldn't be. I mean, yeah. it is, yeah. but it shouldn't be. I think I'm kind of happy with someone being excommunicated from their church, for example, um, or given the cold shoulder, um, or. Or, for example, in the Council of Count, Count Dankula, who with the Nazi saluting pug dog, which I sort of wrote about in greater length in the book. Um, if YouTube want to take it down, they're a private company. They can do what they like if they're clear about what the rules are. I have no problem with that. Um, but the moment that someone makes you feel bad means that the police should go and arrest yeah. them is a very, very serious worry. Mm. And I don't quite see how we're going to get out of that. Because yeah. that that way tyranny lies. Is there, a, is there a warning here, though, again, for Christians who... Um, I think you, I think you kind of argue in this book that sometimes we can be a little bit too quick to jump on the I'm offended bandwagon. Absolutely. And to even, you know, think, well, if the law's there and, and you know, allows yeah. me to go and get someone else in trouble, yeah. yeah, let's stand up for ourselves. Come on, Christians, let's yeah. take this person to court or whatever. Absolutely, which is why, you know, there's a whole chapter about, uh, in fact, there's probably two or three chapters, about Jerry Springer, the opera, uh, which I picked partly because it was a big deal at the time and partly because it's 10 years ago, we now have a little bit more perspective mm. on it and how there was a private prosecution uh, brought against uh, the, the writers of that show, which ultimately got thrown out, I would argue, on a bit of a technicality. But I don't think the law itself was a good law and that law, about, the blasphemy law now doesn't exist. It's right. not, um, it's, it has been sort of struck away from, from common law, which is yeah. what it was, I, I believe. I don't, I'm not an expert on these things. I'm kind of comfortable with the idea that Christians, if they want to stand outside a theatre and wave placards, fine um if you want to um not buy something or not patronize something or boycott something because of this or that well okay that's fine um if you're not prepared to watch it before you criticize it i think that limits your capacity or legitimacy in terms of critiquing it i i don't need to watch it to know that it's wrong for example mm -hmm. and I think well you, as a christian you may decide that you can't unsee what you've seen and therefore you don't want to and that's fine but as C.S. Lewis would argue, I've mentioned before, he says you do need to submit to the art form in order to be able to critique it. Um, so I think there are so many factors at play that require just a little bit of a cool head and a little bit of uh, a thought and a little bit of consideration about where this ultimately is going to lead. Yes. And I think you need to just be aware of if you want the law to be changed to suit you, just think how will this law be used against you mm. um, because the state rightly has the power of coercion mm -hmm. to you know they bear the sword and that sword has been given to them by god therefore we should be very careful what powers how we allow them to use the sword exactly yeah <laughs> and i even teach my kids as it were and if i was prime minister what law would i bring in it's like no i would I, we, 
you can't fix problems with laws. Um, the only hope of salvation, the only hope of healing our bitterly divided society with also chronic issues of loneliness um, and dysfunction is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, politics is not going to fix that. Mm. Um, it may, may it may make a few bits better for a while. Yeah. It tends to make things worse. Um, but it is a change of heart uh, that our society needs. And that comes... And that comes through the proclamation of the gospel. Mm. And therefore, Christians really should make sure that we are free to do that. Yes. And and we are kind of in a dangerous situation where we are not. Mm. Bring it back to churchy things. Mm-hmm. There's a great bit in the book where you talk about how a lot of churches will invest perhaps in making sure their choir sounds nice. They'll put a good PA system in or you may go to a kind of church where there's a, a hired worship leader. And yet the public reading of scripture doesn't seem to get as much attention in your view. Can you tell me a bit more about that observation? I found very interesting. Uh, well, to be honest, it was the thing I found most interesting in writing the book. It was one of my, it was one of the bits that I learned that I wasn't expecting to, to feel strongly about. And yeah, you, you I mean, I've I've been around lots of uh, churches because for various reasons, including sort of some of the theatre stuff that I do, and you do sort of find these sound desks that you could basically land a plane on or a <laughs> helicopter, and tons and tons of money being spent on music and worship, and yep. and that's fine. It's not for me to say that that's wrong, but it is very frustrating uh, that uh, the public reading of scripture is so badly done. And the reason I mention it in the book is because um, I want to argue that scripture is a lot funnier. Uh, than we give it credit for and there are lots of reasons why people aren't expecting to find it funny and historically christians have a problem with this and you're not expecting to laugh in church and there and whenever his jesus is portrayed in art he's always appearing serious or he's got a thousand yard stare or he looks sad or something um for some reason um not fun to be with as actually he probably uh, was much more um but i argue that if you read scripture as written well the most surprising thing that people find is how funny it is and how surprising, especially the Gospels, the Gospel stories, the things that Jesus does and says, which we have now become bored of or used to. But actually, if you read them afresh, if you present them anew, not by rewriting them, not by updating them, not by changing the language, but by reading the actual language. If So actually, and actors do that really well. Um, and I've I've seen actors do it really well. There's a friend of mine called Bruce Kuhn who does that. He performs the Gospels verbatim. I looked it up when you mentioned it yeah. in the book, and I was stunned. It was yeah. incredible. It's great, and if in the room, it's even better. And because um, he's me- he's memorized it, he's memorized it. it. But again, he he says that memorizing is not actually that hard. It's almost like he teaches people how to memorize it by sh- by sort of helping them to visualize the event and using the text to prompt a retelling of that story. And again, you're using the same words of that story, but you're just giving it a freshness. Um, And when you do that, and also when you read longer passages of scripture, you note repetition, you note themes emerging, you note, um, you become more familiar with the humanity of the disciples and how strange it must have been and how, you know, how bizarre the transfiguration is. Can you imagine being with Jesus Mm. and going up the mountain and seeing him standing there with with these two people is that is that Moses and Elijah you know hasn't Moses been dead for a thousand years um and Elijah to be fair didn't die but he he went up to heaven in a chariot made of fire um that that doesn't make it any less strange I I, I realize that and Peter and Peter's kind of panics and he sort of says I'll build you shelters and um 
and you can imagine Elijah and Moses sort of looking at Jesus and going, "What's what's what's this guy yeah. doing?" And Jesus sort of saying, "Well, you know, you, you get used to it after a while. You know, he's <laughs> he, he's with me. He's fine. You know, he'll he'll run out of steam eventually." And so, if you kind of approach these things with a bit of a freshness to them, and and if you think it can't be done, we have a really noble tradition of Shakespeare and Shakespearean comedies and decent actors make Shakespeare funny right. because there is, it is funny, but right. it's, it's in an unfamiliar language. It's an unfamiliar uh, society with unfamiliar norms as it were, but decent comedy actors bring that out. So when you're reading the Bible publicly, people now use it as a way of involving people in the service and have they read the passage in advance probably not and everyone cringes because they're about to hit the word melchizedek and thinking (laughs) how on earth are they going to melchizedek um and so you know everyone starts to get worried and um and then the preacher has to spend the next 10 minutes kind of going over the the passage and what happened because it's so not it hasn't been read well and actually you you know the preaching would, would would really benefit from that as well but we don't really have that tradition of, of making scripture alive. Um, and Christian actors don't aspire to do scripture. They aspire to do Shakespeare. And I think that's a shame. But I don't, we've not painted a vision. We've not painted a bigger picture yeah. of what God's unadulterated word can do. You know, we're not firing blanks here when we read the scriptures. You know, it is, it is, a, it is a sharp sword. Um, and if only we can actually take it out of the scabbard. Um, then we might actually start getting somewhere. It's a great challenge mm. for anyone who is uh, due to read next in church. I yeah, hope, uh... but here's the problem. If you do it really well, people will sort of go, oh, who do you think you are? <laughs> it's like, oh, you're bringing attention to yourself by right. reading the scripture well. It's wow. just like, oh, okay, but so-and-so is allowed to be good at the guitar and that's yeah. fine, is it? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a big uphill struggle it's a really big change of culture that we need and i don't know how to do it but i'm, I'm keen to give well you've some... started it by putting it into our heads put to the flag i planted the flag right um here. that brings us nicely onto the fact that you are part of the church of england i am are you a comfortable member of the church of england or an uncomfortable member of the church of england? um i am satisfied <laughs> that the 39 articles represent a, a reformed christian faith uh, to which i cheerfully submit and so on paper the church of england's pretty pretty awesome right and um and there are multiple expressions of that in ways that i'm not comfortable but in the way in which it is expressed in my home church in somerset um i i you know i enjoy my church and i'm proud to represent the diocese of bath and wells at the general synod and and have a voice in that Mm. um you know and again seeking to encourage the church of england to return to a robust uh biblical faith um, because all of the founders were Calvinists, uh, so and that's my team. So um, <laughs> you know, they would argue not, and I, 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 I get it. It's, it's, it, I'm, I, I sort of, I, I, you know, I compress for comic effect. But uh, <laughs> well, you meant, no, but I think there's a there's there's a lot of truth in that. Mm. You mentioned your team in the mm. Church of England, and rightly or wrongly, people often describe the Church of England as basically forming three different teams, camps, parties. Yeah. There's the evangelicals. Yeah. There's the lib- there's the liberals yeah. and there's the kind of Anglo Catholics yeah. and you fit into one of those three yeah you do yeah. and arguably the reason the Church of England works if you're someone who thinks it does work yeah. is because these three groups almost sort of hold each other in tension or hold them accountable yeah. but if I'm understanding you correctly what you're saying was well actually in your view no one of those teams was the kind of found the founders of the church well and you're trying to draw the other two camps back into what it originally was yes although it was originally a Roman church and therefore the Anglo Catholics would say well we were here first and at which point you have to go yep okay but actually i would have much more in common with with those guys uh because i think they're the way they express their faith is more formal than necessarily i think is is required 
um but i'm much more comfortable especially as you get older with with liturgy and with with the rites r r i t e um and the and the rituals as it were because you sort of understand the meaning of them and you see uh, and i think one of the critiques rightly that they would have of evangelicalism is that it 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 starts to get pretty naff and meaningless quite quickly once those ceremonies are removed so we kind of want to remove the pharisaical rituals but actually um much as we say we don't like liturgy we don't have to use the same words all the time yeah. and our prayers don't have sound very similar um and i guess the liturgies don't have to be pharisaical right? absolutely yeah life and that, that's your right? and that's your heart you know and yeah. that, that, so so in a way i have a lot of sympathy for the uh uh, for, for the fact that these things do all coalesce and actually we can and that one of the things i've really enjoyed about general synod is the fact that i can stand there and say the apostles creed uh which is a very long and very specific thing to, to say and believe that we all basically believe these things and that's that's not bad that's something um and and that's a pretty good starting point yes. but then of course the you know possibly literally the devil is in the detail um <laughs> And you know, and then we sort of start pulling in slightly different directions. There but. was that brilliant moment, I think, in the Houses of Parliament where it might be an MP stood up and referred to General Synod, thinking it was a general, he or she was a general in the army, right, rather than General Synod being wow. the, the governing body oh, of the Church of England. I believe please, is the appropriate no. term. Oh my goodness! So you're you're part of the governing body of the Church of England in that regard. If General Synods were to I mean, to, to take the kind of the big example that a lot of people talk about at the moment, if the church thing were to change its position on something like gay marriage, would mm. that then be time for you to leave? It is hard to know where the points are where you just think, you know what, I'm done here. And when I've spoken to people in other denominations, they uh, they do say, well, you know, the grass isn't as green on the other side of the fence as you might think it is. And they're all fighting other battles over over other things. And undoubtedly, the position of my church within the town centre it has big wide open doors where people come in and we can preach the gospel to people and that is not a position um that as an evangelical and an, and an evangelistic evangelical that one would be keen to throw away but there does come a point where you just think this isn't what the bible teaches and um, i think the bible is clear on this and i think there are some things over which we can disagree and i you know i have you know i have for example, if it, what even constitutes a Christian? Is it somebody who is baptized or, or not, or infant baptized or um, baptized as an adult or whatever it is? And actually, you know, lo loads of my um, favorite authors hold different positions for me on that. But then there are other things which you think, I think the scripture is clear on this particular issue or that particular issue. And at that point, uh, you know, I, I don't think in conscience I can I can sit alongside that. And it's a very painful and frustrating thing and and everyone's lines are in slightly different places and that's the beauty of the, of the new testament particularly is is the honesty that we all have slightly different consciences that are from god and that we don't need to throw people under the bus for having a different biting point for their conscience than we do and we don't have to say you ungodly people for tolerating this great abomination and there are others um who um who you know would express themselves very differently it is a difficult process yeah. but at the same time you do have to say well i can i can't go here we were always inching towards these sorts of things but at the moment there is no official change to the canon law and i don't think that if a change to the canon law were proposed now that that would pass all right. three houses of the general synod um so in one sense i guess i'll cross that bridge when i come to absolutely. it absolutely so thinking about you know all we talked about in your your life and your career and your faith mm. how would you describe your calling i think at the moment it's uh 
something that I'm really thinking about in terms of I spent the last 20 years writing quite a lot of sitcoms and I think I've written or co-written about 150 half wow. hours for the BBC for TV and radio which wow. seems uh, that's not that's not Pretty a bad decent. start we'll go yeah. with that yeah that's all right um I'm you know only just <laughs> I'm 43 um uh Golden and Simpson are still some way off they wrote more than that um but also I do so that is something that I do feel I like doing and I like um working in that way and without sounding sanctimonious in that kind of way that uh you get in chariots of fire you know I'm when he says you know he's going to go off to become a missionary but he wants to compete in the olympics and when she says why do you want to do that he says because god made me fast and when i run i feel god's pleasure and i think i do feel that god has given me those gifts which i do like to use in his and i do think that is something i've been called to do but the other thing is i do enjoy um and i'm increasingly drawn towards encouraging christians to have more confidence in their own christian story um, because I think culturally we are, um, uh, we're going to be severely tested in in the coming uh, years and decades. And actually, if we don't know who we are and where we've come from as a church, I think we're in danger. Which is why I was I've been drawn towards writing about this um, next year. We celebrate the murder of Thomas Beckett. Odd thing to celebrate, celebrate I know, but yeah. um, but it is a momentous thing. As, again, for me as a sort of a, a Calvinist I'm, I'm not really on the the Beckett team on one level but it's a really interesting story and I think in many ways he did the right thing and I'm, I, I admire uh, his stand on these things and I wrote a show about um, about Martin Luther in the 95 Theses called A Monk's Tale which I saw at Edinburgh Fringe and I love well that's very kind of you to say and the CD the audio CD is available <laughs> uh, amongsttale.net there we go got that in um, but I think Christians need to know these stories and I'm, I'm suddenly become much more interested in the story of William Tyndale, who I think does not get enough credit uh, for his Bible translating work and giving us an English Bible and having to go on the run and ultimately paying with his life uh, and, and telling those stories to say, look, we may feel under attack. We may feel like the establishment is not interested in a, in a, in a biblical Christian faith. Um, but we've been here before and these are the guys that have and the guys and the girls that have got us through and have shown how God um, blesses and honors uh, those and sometimes we die and sometimes we survive um, so I think I'm really drawn to doing more in that kind of space as well and, and what that looks like in the future um, I don't really know but I'm, I'm quite excited about it watch this space James mm. Carey thank you so much for coming in it's been a pleasure to talk thank you for having me there you have it. That was my conversation with the sitcom writer James Carey. Covered a lot of ground there. I do hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. We're bringing you a different profile interview every single week here on the Profile Podcast. If you search back through our archive, you'll find well over 100 different interviews that myself and other members of the team here at Premier have conducted. It's all made possible by Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that I edit and it sponsors this show. If you would like to have a look at what we're doing with the print magazine, you can request one free copy, your first copy of the magazine completely free. There's no obligation to subscribe. We just want you to have a look and see if it's the sort of thing you might find interesting, relevant and helpful to receive on a regular basis. But get that first copy completely free. Just go to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Our May edition is out now. features an interview with Christian Concerns' Andrea Williams. We're also looking at the topic of secularism. Is it on the rise in the UK? And if so, should Christians be worried? Trevin Wax has a fantastic culture column on authenticity. How should Christians understand that concept? And we've also interviewed the worship leader, Lou Fellingham. Get a free copy, premierchristianity.com. 
And one more thing before we go. If you did enjoy this episode of the Profile Podcast, we would so appreciate it if you take a moment to give us a rating and a review wherever you got this. So go on, just takes a couple of clicks, couple of swipes. It would really help us out. It allows more people to discover this content. So if you are able to rate and review us, we would so appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on the Profile Podcast. I have been Sam Hales in conversation with James Carey. We will see you next time.